welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lin, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. It's a month since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and we're devoting this episode to the arc of autocracy, as it's been dubbed by Australia's Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Global leaders keep parroting this idea that China holds the key to this conflict, and that Beijing could play an instrumental role in pushing Russia's President Putin to peace talks. Well, how true is that? We're joined by two fantastic thinkers whose work crosses both China and Russia. Alex Gabalov, senior fellow and Russia chair in the Asia Pacific program at the Carnegie Moscow Center. Our second guest, who's joining us for the second time, is Maria Repnikova, assistant professor in global communication at Georgia State University, who has, since we last had her on, published a short book called Chinese Soft Power with Cambridge University Press. Alex, let's start with you. To what extent would you characterize China's stance on Ukraine as pro-Russia or anti-US? What's the balance there? I would say that Chinese stance is pro-China. China cares about its interests first and foremost, and obviously, anti-Americanism is what colors Chinese attitude towards the crisis. For China,、uh, it's a proxy war between the U.S. ally, although Ukraine is not a former ally, but definitely a partner. And、uh, resurging Russia that seeks its place as a global and regional power and wants to establish its authority and dominance in its neighborhood. So that colors the perspective. The relationship with Russia is of paramount importance. Both countries share a colossal continental border that used to be source of tensions and conflict during the Sino-Soviet split. It's now a source of stability and allows China to divert its military and other resources elsewhere to more. Priority theaters like Taiwan Strait or South China Sea or border with India.、Uh, China is reliant on supply of Russia's natural resources. There is this axis between the two leaders.、Uh, they both support each other、uh, as P five members, as the only two、uh, authoritarian P five members on many issues on the global governance. So this relationship is too important to throw Russia under the bus. At the same time, relationship with the West is still of. Huge significance: the access to the markets, access to technology, access to the global financial system. China knows that relationship with the West is going to deteriorate further, not because of Ukraine, but because China is China. China will not stop building the re-education camps in Xinjiang. China will not stop harass. Democratic freedom in Hong Kong, and China will not stop to be more assertive,、uh, aggressive, and potent as a challenger to U.S. global dominance. But China definitely has the interest to slow down the pace of this、uh, deterioration in relationship with both the U.S. and the EU. So, Ukraine crisis is a very important test where China needs to balance those interests. And so far, I think that China is doing a pretty good job.、Uh, If you see it in China's shoes, so Maria, I mean, let's go back to February the fourth. That's when Russian and Chinese leaders met in this kind of love-in against the backdrop of the Winter Olympics, and they issued a joint statement which heralded a new era in the global order and a scathing rejection of the U.S.-led West's hegemony. 
I mean, how important do you think that meeting is in the context of what happened afterwards? Well, I think it's it's quite important symbolically because it's, it showcases this uh, deep, I think, ideological allegiance or kind of a sense of coming together uh, in terms of what you know Alex already talked about, this anti-Western kind of sentiment, but also the larger ambition at shrinking or pushing back against Western hegemony. So I think that that sentiment and that kind of agenda we see playing out now vis-a-vis uh, -vis Ukraine as well. I mean, as Alex mentioned, it's, it's mostly kind of anti-American sentiments that mark this pro-Russia statements. Um, I think in Chinese media, Chinese official statements, we just see this really striking anti-Western tone. And to me, that's quite different from 2014, a Crimea annexation case where there was some anti-American sentiment, but not nearly as prominent uh, in the discourse of Chinese officials. But also we see the same narrative playing out on social media, on Weibo, in Chinese official media. I think it's something that kind of trickles down to all the levels. It's not just an official language. It's something that takes place on all arenas of Chinese discourse at the moment, which, which is quite interesting. So the messaging is really quite uniform up and down the system. I found it to be quite uniform in my analysis. The recent piece I published for The Atlantic, you know, showcases that from official statements to social media to news media, you know, state media, we see some similar messaging. Of course, it's not all the same. We see some distinctions as well. For instance, CGTN has published quite a bit or has broadcasted quite a bit from the Ukrainian side. So we see some footage coming out of Ukraine, whereas state media that's broadcasting for domestic Chinese audience is barely broadcasting anything about Ukraine or from the Ukrainian perspective. So there is some distinction in audience targeting, but the overall message when it comes to the China stance and how China sees itself, I agree, it's primarily sees itself, you know, in terms of defending its own interests. Uh, but we do see oftentimes in kind of unpacking this conflict, it's NATO and the US that gets blamed as the key instigator, not Russia. So that, that's, that seems to be the framing of its uh, kind of narrative. And it hasn't changed that much. It was interesting to observe. It's been almost four weeks, right, or more than four weeks. It's the same point that they're making um, across time. I noticed some shift a little bit around meeting between Jake Sullivan and Yang Zichu in Rome and then the call between President Biden and Xi Jinping, uh, where China probably realized that its propaganda, even domestic propaganda, travels across Chinese borders and that a lot of smart China watchers like Maria are seeing that. And uh, that's the optics where the U.S. government can point to the Chinese counterparts that, hey, actually, you're taking a pro-Russian stance and you are enablers. So I think that this was this calibration uh, on the week of these meetings. And the Chinese ambassador to the U.S., Ting Gang, came out in Washington Post with the article saying that, oh, China didn't know anything about it. China is not a party and China supports Ukrainian territorial integrity and sovereignty and is a peace-loving country. But otherwise, I totally agree with Maria. We saw reports that China started this campaign to educate people at universities, teachers on how to talk about Ukraine. And basically, the main talking point is that the U.S. is to blame. It's really all about pushing and expanding U.S.-led military alliances that had provoked Russia into this war. And that's the narrative. And there was even a charming touch where you were allowed to dob in your professor if they were uh, deviating from the correct mass line. Yeah. So, Alexander, the New York Times was reporting that based on Western intelligence, senior Chinese officials told their Russian counterparts not to invade Ukraine before the end of the Winter Olympics. And then four days after the end of the Games, it happened. Um, Beijing now says that this is fake news. But from where you sit, do you, do you believe that Beijing did have foreknowledge of what Russia was intending to do? 
I think that given the CIA performance and U.S. intelligence uh, community performance during this crisis, we have all the reasons to believe the accuracy of CIA information. And it's like I, I have bias because CIA is led by my former boss, Ambassador Bill Burns. But nevertheless, uh, obviously, CIA had a very good knowledge of this. I think that uh, the New York uh, Times story so- doesn't sound very realistic to me, frankly, because uh, based on what I know, there was no direct discussion between Xi Jinping and Putin on the issue whether Russia is really uh, kind of planning to attack Ukraine. And then one uh, counter argument to this is if you remember the Russian National Security Council meeting on February 21, just three days before the war started, where the top brass of the Russian security establishment was discussing recognition of the Donetsk and Luhansk People Republics as independent states. A lot of very senior leaders, including head of the intelligence, Sergei Narushkin, were visibly shocked by Putin's decision to recognize them. So even if his members, some members of his inner circle were not aware of what's going on, either they should receive Oscars because it's all stage performance, or we should think that... Uh, it was really a very tiny little group of probably 10 people, Putin himself, his minister of defense, the chief of general staff, his head of domestic security, and a couple of generals who were there to draw arrows on the map. Uh, why would he discuss that with a foreign leader in presence of interpreters, in presence of ambassadors and many outside people? Based on what I know, there was never a direct exchange on Crimea annexation, on a decision to intervene into the U.S. elections back in 2016 between Putin and Xi. Despite this very cordial relationship between the two and this authoritarian access, it's not this depth of trust that Putin will share his most intimate plans and secrets. So if, if some conversation has happened, I would imagine this happening in all those lines. Like, oh, Vladimir, I know you have this terrible trouble to the west of your borders and that these Ukrainian nationalists supported by the Americans are pushing really hard. And I hope that after all, it will be solved peacefully. Uh, it's the Olympics after all. So probably as terrible as these Ukrainians are, they will observe the Olympic truce. And then Putin will go, yes, uh, thank you, C. I know that your support is very valuable for me. And I'm trying to kind of have a peaceful settlement. And yes, I hope that these savages observe the Olympic truce. So that might be the kind of level of discussion. But I cannot imagine Putin telling Xi Jinping that he's going to invade. And then there is this ask to not invade during the Olympics. That doesn't sound realistic to me. So, Alex, I mean... Part of this No Limits deal was um, there was a deal for China to buy almost $120 billion worth of um, oil and gas at quite high prices. I mean, adding that to the fact that you're saying he didn't know in advance, would would it be fair, as some commentators have said, that Xi Jinping got played? I don't think so. It's just not that Putin has shared this with anybody. Like, if Xi Jinping would ask, uh, do you plan to attack? And Putin would say no that would be a kind of indication that he has been played. Since he probably didn't ask, uh, he wasn't played. It's just that Putin didn't share his uh, ultimate goal with Xi. And that also exposes limits to this uh, partnership. 
It's not an alliance. And yes, it's deep and deepening and it has all of the underlying uh, reasons to become even deeper uh, beyond animosity of both Moscow and Beijing to the United States, what's perceived as American uh, hegemony. But still, there is huge mistrust, there are division, and there are interests that are either not aligned or are in competition with each other. For example, their dominance in Central Asia is a good example here. So Maria, maybe maybe to follow up on that point, I mean, the, the bromance that we saw on 12th of February looked looked pretty genuine. And you have, in some ways, two very similar figures. I mean, they're both guys in their late 60s. They're both autocrats with dreams of national rejuvenation. I mean, where do their worldviews link up and where do they, if you like, part company? Yeah, well, I've always been a bit skeptical about how close, you know, they they really are in terms of just the deeper layers of this relationship. I think that um, as a bromance, I guess all bromances have some superficial <laughs> dimensions, but generally I'm a little bit skeptical of bromances. But yeah, that's another topic. But, you know, it's just thinking about, I guess, she and Putin, uh, I think there's been this temptation to kind of link them into this uh, kind of unbreakable, yeah, bromance, couplehood, whatever, alliance for quite some time. And there are some scholars in, in, in the U.S. that have been arguing that China and Russia are colluding. They've been arguing this for like three decades and every time something happens they're like oh yeah they are colluding right so there's always like some example that kind of um, symbolizes or signifies that they're coming even closer together but i think we have to look at different layers right of this relationship to be able to unpack whether or not they're really that close and um yeah i think there's definitely a suspicion you know mutual suspicion that's kind of at the geopolitical level as alex mentioned central asia is a good example there's some emerging competition also in africa we see that russia is coming back to africa so to speak not as actively as china but still doing very different engaging some different initiatives some more kind of disinformation oriented battles but also more military equipment supplies and sales and engagements with elites right they're setting up summits russia africa summits that china has been doing for a while now for kind of as a leader in this relationship with africa from the global south perspective so we see some kind of uh, you know engagement in competitive arenas it's not all you know complementary i can see it as complementary but also there you know there's some colliding interests as well in terms of spheres of influence and then at a societal level as well just looking beyond geopolitics that's something i studied many many years ago and i haven't really followed up like to do a similar empirical study, but others have done that. And we do see that it's not as close at the level of society, meaning that there isn't that deep trust or understanding of one another. One thing I found very striking on my last visit to China, where I was actually doing research on China-Africa relations, uh, some China scholars have been, uh, Chinese scholars have been kind of questioning, why am I working on Africa if I can speak Russian, right? Like if you're a Russian, you should, you should work on only on China-Russia. Why are you wasting your time? And I said, well, this is, you know, more interesting to me right now. I'll get back to the other topic later. They're like, well, there's so few. We don't have any Russian scholars, you know. We can send you over to Moscow to, you know, be part of a delegation. They just didn't have enough, like, younger scholars who are pursuing this field or studying Russian, right? There's some senior ones, older generation, but younger ones, I've met very few um, scholars who are pursuing this kind of, you know, uh, knowledge gathering or just trying to really study Russia. A lot more focus has been on the West, meaning the US primarily. There's huge institutes devoted to the study of the US. So in that sense, also kind of knowledge production, I think in the Russian case, of course, Alex is at the helm of this China Watcher, China Scholars community. So there are, there are quite a few, I think, but still for a country at this size, you would expect there'd be more, right? If you think about the US, there are China centers everywhere, right? Like all around the country. So we have some in Russia, but not nearly as developed of a space as it is in the States. So I think that's another manifestation of this kind of relationship, maybe not being as as uh, multifaceted or well-developed as um, it appears from the bromance perspective. And I think on the economic side as well, there could be a lot more uh, exchange given the complementarity of the economies, but not as much, I think, has been accomplished as could have been. I think that uh, something that kept the uh, Russia studies uh, were the Chinese Soviet studies and that 
the party has really invested a lot of effort to study the demise of the Soviet Union. And there were a lot of Sovietologists who were documenting this. And still you have this skill, the language proficiency, and you have still some very good scholars in their uh, 40s, 50s, and 30s. Like there are up and coming stars, but definitely uh, the most ambitious people go into study of the US, not Russia. And I mean, when it comes to the media coverage, I mean, you've talked a bit about how uniform the messaging is. And, you know, it's really notable that the Chinese media has not used the term war or conflict. It's used special military operations, so aping Russian language. Have there been any shifts or any sort of trajectory in the media coverage that is worth noting at this point? Um, well, I, I found more continuities than shifts overall. I mean, we have some, of course, divergent voices. I think the, depending on which you know official is speaking up or in which context, we see some softening versus some kind of hardening. So we see some divergent voices at the same time. But at the same time, you know, what we see, I think, that's interesting to me is that Ukraine's story has been kind of underplayed, or uh, you know, it hasn't been that visible in Chinese media. Just yesterday, I was checking. People's daily, and actually, it's been like this for weeks. You see Xi Jinping on like his red, you know, letters, all kinds of policies. Of course, the Congress, but also just other policies that are being passed and discussions that are really China-centric. And uh, I was trying to find Ukraine on that main page, you know, with all this other stories. It was just one story, and the only story that w- it was about basically positive signals coming out of the recent peace talks in Turkey. So it's just only kind of somewhat, you know, maybe hopeful stories, or things might be settled, or things are kind of coming together. And I saw the same trend when I was uh, watching Simon Liam on CCTV for a kind of consistency of three weeks every night. I saw that Ukraine comes up at the very end of the broadcast towards the last three minutes. And the main message or what they're trying to capture is basically peace talks. They've been covering that really extensively, but not so much of, you know, other facets of the, of the conflict, right? So, so overall, I think how the story was really kind of underplayed, under, you know, underreported, or I think it's deliberately so. I mean, it's just kind of hidden in the larger coverage of other stories, in particular China domestic stories. And now, of course, COVID is dominating those um, the coverage. But Beijing is not offering it, itself up as a mediator. I mean, when it no. came to the Korean talks, you know, Beijing was there. Why do you think that is this time that it's, you know, underplaying the story and, and not not um, offering a more active role, despite all these headlines that we see from the West? Right. Well, I think being a mediator in this conflict, it's quite a risky position, you know. So if, if you know, what Alex was saying before, if we take into account that it's mainly China's interest that uh, Beijing is trying to protect or um, or enhance, right? So is staying on the sidelines seems more beneficial than being in the middle because how do you be in the, how are you in the middle without kind of sacrificing some of Russia's interests because you have to give Russia to give up, uh, right? Something and at the moment it looks very tricky even though the, I guess there's some progress from yesterday but it's not clear um, how far this progress will go or to what extent it's going to yield peace, right? Versus kind of warfare moving to other parts of Ukraine. So in that sense, for China to be in the middle of it, they would have to really kind of pressure Russia or at the very least be right in the middle of this. And then if things don't go well, they will be blamed, right, for, for not doing well. So that their image would kind of sink in that regard. And if it goes well, it means pushing Russia to do more, right? And how would that work, right? Can they do that? So it seems more beneficial from kind of a strategic perspective of just, you know, China's domestic interests and even arguably external interests. I mean, China, despite, you know, some arguing it's isolated, Chinese uh, leaders have been going to India, they're going to Africa, right? They're all over global south so they're not really that isolated overall right they're pursuing other policies and other expansion but i think for them getting right in the middle of this would be a very treacherous territory and it seems more strategic to kind of stay on the sidelines and to use this 
again, kind of ambiguous talk of, you know, there's hope for peace, we're promoting dialogue, right? But at the same time, we're not going to do much about it, right? Like, we're not going to be involved. And, and also, I think being in the middle of it would mean kind of realigning with the West. Um, and that seems to go completely against this anti-Western narrative. So how would domestic Chinese public take that? Uh, domestic Chinese public has been really adamant about this being the fault of NATO, the fault of the West. So suddenly becoming like the middle, the mediator, how do you do that without the West? Because I think the West or the US wouldn't allow China just to be there on, on its own. It would be kind of part of this whole process and wouldn't necessarily trust China either to just to be there again on its own. So I think there's the trust issues and domestic public to consider given just how high heightened the nationalism is at the moment, you know, how do you let that go and then suddenly shift positions dramatically? I think that would, that would not look good for, for Xi Jinping. But Alexander, that kind of strategic ambiguity is really going to be tested now. Russia seems to be asking for material support. What do you think China is going to offer, you know, on the kind of spectrum of meal-ready rations, oil, all the way up to tanks and weapons? How do you suspect China will play this? Russia doesn't need Chinese weapons, uh, except for drones and some other elements of equipment where China has technological superiority over Russia. And you probably saw these uh, articles about uh, China uh, being asked by Russia in the middle of the conflict, uh, like two weeks into the conflict, about uh, supply of some materials. I think that this particular piece of intelligence that was leaked to the Western media is a correct one, but that's a portrayal of longstanding negotiation that predates the war as uh, a rapid ask of Russia for material support, because it doesn't make sense. Uh, it would take China months to deliver this equipment, and it would take months to train the drone operators to refit uh, some of the munition on the Russian platforms. So it just doesn't make practical sense. Uh, I think it's much more part of U.S. pressure campaign on China to hold distance uh, with Russia. Uh, the problem here is that Russian economy is in freefall, and China's leverage in talking to the Russians is growing day by day. It's a very unpredictable situation where a war continues, sanctions are mounting. And I think that China wants to be very careful in not violating the sanctions. I think that China will be religious in observing the letter of the sanctions first and foremost. But since right now we are in unpredictable territory, why would you risk? So we see a lot of overcompliance where Chinese banks are not uh, issuing credit lines for supporting existing trade relationships where China puts some of the pre-arranged projects like project between uh, Sinopec and Seaboard, the largest Russian petrol and gas chemical company to build a gas uh, chemical plant uh, in Amur region on hold because of the sanctions risk. So I think that once the situation stabilizes, China will be able to see what's possible and what kind of instruments and tools China can use. It has a lot of experience with uh, countries like Iran and North Korea, where probably some of these models uh, can be applied. There will be a special bank somewhere in Heilunzian refitted to work with Russia exclusively, for example, through RMB with no access to US dollars or euros. But that will only be possible once there is a more or less predictable and stable situation and not now. And again, China's leverage will be very huge. Uh, and by, by every week of continuation of this terrible war, China's leverage is simply growing. So why would you start 
doing anything now for Russia when your effort and your support will be 10 times uh, the rewards uh, just a couple of months down the road. Given that Russia isn't a major economic partner of China, it's not even in the top 10. I mean, is there any downside to a weakened Russia for China? I mean, doesn't a weakened Russia simply mean a country more dependent on, on China in the future? That's true. And that means that you can get like once uh, Europe is phasing out uh, purchases of Russian oil and gas, like Russia will need uh, this oil and gas to go somewhere. And that somewhere is only China. So you will be able to dictate the price formula. You will be most likely uh, providing this for RMB, not for euros and dollars. And here is the thing. Before the war, Russians didn't want that much trade settlement. Like they wanted, in theory, a trade settlement in RMB. But since RMB is not fully convertible, uh, they have launched some trial schemes and found out that, okay, it's really very painful to withdraw your RMB earnings outside of China, exchange this to uh, any other convertible currency. Right now, Russia will have simply no choice. So China will dictate both the price and the currency. And that's the way to promote RMB as a regional currency in Eurasia without making it con uh, convertible. Uh, it's a win-win for China, where China wins twice. The problem, again, is the size of the sticks coming China's way if it does so, and if it's portrayed and viewed as the only outside enabler uh, of uh, the Putin's regime. As long as Europeans continue to buy large volumes of Russian exports, China is in a safe place because it can always point out to Germany and say, hey, guys, you're buying large volumes from Gazprom and Rosneft. What about you? Like, you fix your problem first and then we'll talk. Once this is kind of out of the picture, and that probably will not happen overnight, but it will happen a couple of years down the road, China will be in a more problematic spot. But also there are a lot of wild cards on the table, including the nature of the U.S.-China relationship, particularly what happens after the 2024 presidential election in the U.S. So China definitely has time to wait. So, Alex, I mean, this is a question that, that I have to admit is very me because I'm the kind of scholar that used to hang out at grain stations in rural China. And this slogan, grain is the key link, is, is sort of burned in my brain. One thing that hasn't got a lot of attention is that just as we have this situation where exports of Russia's grain is being cut off and Ukraine potentially isn't planting any grain because they're in the middle of a war and Ukraine is kind of a bit of a breadbasket of, of the region. Usually at this time of year, the Chinese agricultural minister comes out and announces a record harvest. And this year he's come out and said that the Chinese wheat harvest might be the worst in history. So if you add all those things up together, are we looking at the Chinese leader's worst nightmare, the sort of grain shortages, huge inflation, those sorts of pressures later in the year? China will definitely be affected by the impact of this terrible war on wheat market and on other uh, parts of agricultural markets, uh, just as uh, markets in the Middle East and uh, North Africa that are much more dependent on uh, Ukraine and Russia but definitely the global surge in prices will be visible in China too. The way out is that China might import more from Russia. Uh, the problem here is that there are some uh, issues with the protectionism, with red tape that needs to be removed because for now China can buy grain only in the eastern part of Russia, so Siberia and the Russian Far East, 
not where the major grain producing uh, regions are in the Black Sea. Uh, Russia also needs to fix logistics problems. But uh, if there is a political will to do so, probably that's possible. And that's one of the Chinese way to hedge uh, the risks of huge uh, price inflations for wheat uh, this year. And Maria, to get back to some more of your, your research, and this is some really interesting stuff you've been looking at, it's how Chinese netizens are framing the invasion in terms of China and Taiwan. I mean, could you tell us a little bit about what you're, you're seeing in the dark corners of Weibo? Yeah, so this was kind of earlier on, I think, in the in the you know in the war when things just kind of broke out. The first week or so, Taiwan was more prominent as a theme of comparison, but then it seems like that topic has been kind of censored. So we don't see as many Taiwan posts. And um, there was a statement that came out from I think it was Wang Yi. He said that you know Taiwan and Ukraine are two completely separate issues. You know, Ukraine is. Uh, you know, Taiwan is part of China, right? So this is not comparable to, to Ukraine. So he was kind of signaling that we should not be treating the two as um, sort of equal. Uh, but there were some interesting kind of commentaries. I mean, early on, um, one of the anecdotes that I also opened my Atlantic piece with, with was this kind of love triangle. It was, this was related to China, uh, sorry, to, to Russia and Ukraine, not so much Taiwan, but Taiwan comes in later. But there was this love triangle metaphor where, you know, Ukraine was basically like an ex-wife of Russia. And then it started flirting with the West, with the U.S. And But it has those two children, Lugansk and Donetsk from Russia, that kind of almost, you know, abandoned and is trying to get into the West or get with the West. But the West doesn't want Ukraine. So basically, you know... Ukraine is this kind of provocateur, kind of promiscuous woman, right? That's sort of, you know, flirting around and it left, it's left by itself. It's essentially not wanted by anybody anymore. And, you know, Russia has to protect the children. So it's just this kind of, you know, sort of awful romantic. I don't even know it's romantic. It's this kind of, you know, and misogyny was definitely, you know, uh, critiqued by some, some netizens. So it's not completely uniform. There were some that said this is really not prop, not appropriate. They mostly critiqued how, you know, you're using this kind of female, you know, metaphors, or you're treating Ukraine as a woman, as promiscuous woman. But uh, some netizens jumped on and said, yeah, Taiwan is the same thing, right? We need to go ahead and, you know, capture Taiwan, right? This is this is the time where we should do the same thing. We should kind of go after, uh, you know, our kind of, you know, <laughs> last, you know, long last half-wife or whatever, you know, <laughs> this kind of metaphor. So, that, so they applied similar lens, a lot of them, to kind of arguing that this is really the moment, or at the very least, this moment shouldn't come in too long. We should be, you know, prudent and not to let Taiwan kind of swim away towards the West uh, too much. So th- th- there's been that kind of discussion. But as I said, it's been, I think it's been sort of censored or at the very least kind of regulated a bit uh, because so these statements by high level officials um, that argue that Taiwan and Ukraine are not the same thing and we should not treat, it, treat them as equally. So I think some of these very nationalistic sentiments um, have also been censored as, as well as more critical voices that try to fact check and, you know, provide more alternative um, sort of visions about what's been happening in Ukraine, including some voices of Chinese citizens based in Ukraine, those have also been um, censored. So I think the extreme kind of uh, parts of this discourse on both ends, whether it's extreme nationalism or extreme um, sort of in terms of critique um, of pro-Russia position, both have been kind of deleted. So then we are left with something sort of in the middle that's uh, pro-Russia, but also very much anti-NATO, but focused more on Ukraine, not bringing in Taiwan as much and not challenging um, Chinese government's position vis-a-vis Taiwan. So not, not exuding this kind of uh, impatience, you know, how long should we wait until until the takeover of Taiwan? So, but the sentiment is still there. So I think that that's in and of itself is interesting. So even though it's deleted, it's still, you know, you don't delete the sentiment, you delete the, the you know, the, the words, but uh, the sentiment remains. So that, that potentially creates a challenge in maybe the medium or long term. But um, for now, at least rhetorically, they've been dealt with or 
you know, censored. And it's so fascinating that it's in such gendered terms, like yeah, this whole much. talk about, you know, no one being man enough to stand up for the Soviet Union. And now you could argue, well, you know, Xi Jinping, are you man enough to take Taiwan? Putin's been man enough to take Ukraine. I mean, it's 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 crazy talk, but in some ways you 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 know, it's it's rhetoric they've generated themselves. Well, it's this, this gendered rhetoric I, I found uh, kind of interestingly present on different sides of Chinese online kind of discourse, not not in this particular case specifically, but in other contexts. Uh, we've written a paper with uh, Ko Chang Fang years ago about Taiwan, actually, and how some netizens sort of jumped over, you know, the firewall to attack or to engage with some of these sites in Taiwan to kind of suggest that Taiwan should come back to China. This was post-presidential election and um, Chinese citizens were trying to kind of convince Taiwanese citizens or Taiwanese people basically to come back to return to the mainland, to the homeland. And they were very passionately defending this idea. Um, and when we looked at this kind of discourse, we found that there's a lot of misogynistic kind of rhetoric present both on the side of kind of nationalists, but also liberals, like people who are more critical of this position. Then they attack the nationalists as being female, basically. They said, you're all, you know, this kind of weak women. You don't know what you're doing. You need to be disciplined. You need to be educated. You know, you don't know who you are. So basically they assume that like the little pink, you know, uh, are basically female. They're, they're women and they're this weak kind of, uh, easily misled women. But then on the nationalist side, they, they often accuse the government as being too weak or kind of feminine, or, you know, they treat certain regions or countries as being, again, female and therefore in need of more support, control, more partnership, that's basically by force, right? So, so it's interesting how this kind of female misogyny, you know, this kind of rhetoric is present across the spectrum. And I think that that's something we should be more maybe watching more closely in terms of how it appears when in discussions of various crises in China. And Maria, are there any signs that China's state-backed hackers are being enlisted to help their Russian counterparts? Um, I haven't really seen that, but I, I wasn't looking directly at maybe state-backed hackers, so maybe I'm missing something in that picture. I haven't seen that, but I did see that a lot of um, Russian footage is being incorporated into Chinese footage. So, for instance, if you watch like Chinese media, uh, it's quite interesting to see how often they would refer to like Russia, you know, Russian press conferences or statements, official statements, or even reporting itself. You see like a correspondent like basically standing in the Kremlin, kind of in the in the red square. You don't see him standing like in Ukraine. You see him in Russia. So it's just symbolically, it's like a lot of it is coming from Russia, but also just substantively, a lot of the. Um, material, the footage seems to be echoing or borrowing on um, basically Russian footage. So we see this kind of trickling of Russian media content, uh, official narratives into Chinese media reportage. So that, I think I've seen that. And also I've seen that Sputnik, Sputnik is a state-sponsored Russian, I guess, news agency, news media that's been very popular in some parts of the world. It's got lots of you know followers on, on Chinese social media, right, Weibo. Um, and oftentimes it's that Chinese state media would repost Sputnik, and then that message, that kind of that post would become like the top post or very, very popular post on Weibo. So it's not Sputnik directly kind of setting the agenda, but indirectly it gets kind of co-opted or, you know, it gets shared by a state media. So that's also to me, it's quite interesting just in terms of the influence of these um, Russian media outlets, at least some of them like Sputnik um, on Chinese social media discussions. And I mean, Alex, one thing you've said is that um, you've noticed that Chinese diplomats are sending very different messages to their Western counterparts and to their Russian counterparts. I mean, how long can they keep doing this? How long can they sit on the fence? Like, can they can they do this indefinitely? Or what line would have to be crossed by Russia, if you like, to get them off the fence? I think that if uh, Crimea annexation and war in Donbass provides us a template, that's how China reacts. It has this number of talking points where it says that it supports peace, uh, 
It supports territorial integrity and sovereignty of Ukraine. It doesn't recognize Donetsk and Luhansk as independent statelets. It doesn't recognize Crimea as part of Russian territory. But at the same time, it criticizes unilateral sanctions as being counterproductive and detrimental to the health of global economy. And it criticizes the expansion of U.S.-led military alliances and partnerships. And then, depending on who is in front of them, the Chinese diplomats and officials cherry-pick from this uh, set of uh, theses uh, those that are relevant to the audience. And uh, you remember that uh, Wang Yi was speaking in front of the Munich Security Conference before the war. And then he was full of support for Ukrainian territorial integrity and sovereignty. And everybody was like, oh, China is finally shifting its position, where in fact it's not. It's just very carefully and uh, balancing its uh, position on the fence very well. If Russia uses chemical weapons or, for God's sake, tactical nukes, I think that China will denounce the use of this, but it will not start to criticize Russia and shift its position. It, it will say that, oh, it's kind of, uh, we really don't want to see this and we need to have talks and let's kind of come to census and reinstate the rules uh, along the road, but it will not necessarily come uh, to criticize Russia directly. Um, I think that even in terms of wording, Maria mentioned that uh, the Chinese are not really using the term war. I think that uh, Wang Yi came close to that using uh, so the war fire uh, in one of his exchanges with Western leaders. But that's about it. So when they're speaking to the Americans or the Europeans, they might use uh, the word war. But domestically, and talking to the Russians, they refer to a special military operation. And that works. Finally, a question for both of you, maybe starting with you, Maria. When it comes to this like realignment of the global order, do you see it as playing out in China's favor or not, ultimately? It's hard to say, but yeah, I mean, I think overall, just you know, judging from this particular war, this conflict, uh, if you compare Russia and China or just see China's position, I think there is some realignment uh, to a degree in China's favor. At the same time, there's also closer alliance or closer relationship now between Europe and the U.S. and even more push towards this kind of uh, distinction between autocracies and democracies and kind of dividing this world into this two separate camps coming from, I think, primarily from the U.S., and Europe, right there, really pushing for this kind of narrative that this is there were two separate camps, two separate realities, two separate worlds, um, and that also makes it kind of harder in some ways for China to assert its influence because it's always going to be pushed back. It's always going to be delegitimized by by the West. So some some of the narratives that I see, like in Chinese kind of soft power writings, for instance, it's all about you know realigning, like getting more discourse power. You know, Huai Yuan, this idea that we have to capture this right to speak in the international system from the West um, and kind of equalize this sort of world order. At least I look at more symbolic communication, not military, but it kind of to equalize influence. And when it comes to this particular war, on the one hand, it seems that maybe pragmatically some of it is playing into China's favor or it can get more out of Russia, for instance, uh, as if, you know, once the war hopefully ends, it can get better terms and negotiations. But overall, globally, or at least vis-a-vis Europe and the US, I'm not so sure. I think China's image has only sunk right in the eyes of Europeans and Americans. Um, they're not seeing it as a helpful ally. If anything, they're seeing it as kind of a... Um, 
aiding Russia, right? That has been the overall um, discussion here. So it's helping Russia, it's pro-Russia, you know, it's not saying anything, so it's pro-Russia. If it's saying something, it's not really engaging as a mediator. It's staying away, it's on the sidelines. It's not, it's, it's, a, it's abetting the war, it's aiding the, this kind of, a, the war from the Russian side. So that's, that's not helping its image, and it's not really helping it to equalize or to kind of capture that, you know, Hua Yuxuan uh, from the West. So I think that that's kind of maybe a more um, negative consequence. But then if we look, again, we have to look more cross-region, if you look at Global South, a lot of these discussions um, that, you know, aim or to blame NATO or to kind of uh, take this middle position, we all, they also resonate with a lot of elites. Uh, in Africa, they've been posting some similar messages in Latin America. Uh, so it's not unique to China, I think, these this discussions uh, that kind of try to stay on the sidelines or at the very least to highlight the hypocrisy of the U.S. The fact that the U.S. itself has waged this immense wars was never held accountable, and now it's blaming Russia. This is a very popular narrative. So maybe like in terms of global south sphere of influence, I don't think it's going to suffer as a result of this war. If anything, its influence might expand, but it's not going to go down. So that's, that's kind of my assessment. But vis-a-vis -vis the West, I think we, we will see some uh, more contestation, maybe more uh, pushback, and less of that ability to capture discourse power, if that makes sense, at the very least vis-a-vis -vis Western audiences. Uh, three, qu three quick points on this. First, I think that uh, China is benefiting from the fact that this war will ultimately consume what's left of Biden's presidency. Uh, this war will be protracted. It's not that you can really have an active uh, Indo-Pacific uh, policy when uh, Blinken and Jake Sullivan and Bill Burns and Secretary Austin and everybody is consumed first by the war and talking to the Europeans and to Ukrainians about it. And then it definitely will be a feature of the civil war on the Capitol Hill and between the Republicans and Democrats. Uh, so unfortunately, like the initial uh, desire of Biden's team to focus on China uh, will not be able to kind of materialize. And that's of net benefit to China. Second, uh, if China continues to be the power that follows Barack Obama's mantra, don't do stupid shit, and uh, manages its balancing act well, and actually uses this time to kind of calm down a little bit, to become less assertive, to patch things up with neighbors, and we've seen that with Wang Yi's visit to India, and this effort to really try to improve the relationship with India, ASEAN, Japan at the time when the U.S. is so detached and so devoted to Europe, when where the U.S. will come back and say, hey, what about in the Pacific? What about this terrible China? Everybody probably will be kind of of more and a less agitated attitude, like let's, let's go together and counter China. Uh, at least they're trying to do so, and you see some uh, mild recalibration of Chinese foreign policy in the short to medium run that gives them more breathing space. And finally, unfortunately, this war, because of fuel inflation and because of uh, inflation on uh, grain and other uh, agricultural stuff, will fuel those very divisions that are source of growing Western weakness. It's not the Chinese assertiveness or rise of China that makes the U.S. relatively weaker. It's really this internal divisions in the society that are not addressed. And unfortunately, again, since this war will consume so much of the president's time and will be a very good way for Republicans and Democrats to fight each other uh, on the midterms or before the 2024 election, 
rather than come together and fix American problems. Unfortunately, the West will be weakened by this war uh, through second order, third order effects, and that to net benefit of China as the major challenger uh, to the global supremacy or influence. Alex, Maria, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests, Alex Gabaev and Maria Repnikova, and to my co-host, Louisa Lin. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World. Our editing is by Andy Hazel, background research by Wing Kwong, our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now.